chapter 20. We have verses 1 through 6 to cover tonight. Uh, We come to what surely is the most debated section in this most difficult of books. If you just glance down at the 15 verses in chapter 20, uh, you'll notice that the truth comes to us in four distinct sections. Each one introduced with this phrase from John, Then I saw. And so what we're going to cover tonight is the first two sections of chapter 20 and verses 1 through 6. And then, Lord willing, verse 7 through 15, the final two sections next week. So let me read those first six verses and and then pray for our study and and then we'll begin together. So here now as God speaks to us once again through his word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ And they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask for your help this evening as we study this mysterious text, but one you have meant for our good, one that you call us to see Christ in. Help us to do that by your Spirit. We might hear this word, that we might keep this word, that we might find your promised blessing that you have attached to it. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A number of you know that the previous church that I pastored was one that I planted. And because in the early years of the church, we didn't have a permanent home, of course. and So we were a mobile church, and what we were doing is bouncing around from local church to local church in the area, using their space as it allowed to worship on weekends. And in the second year, I believe, of that church, for a variety of different reasons, we decided it was best to move from the current church we were meeting and move to a different local congregation. And so we began to ask the churches that were kind of in the geographic area of the community, of where we wanted to be, ones that we thought would probably enjoy partnering with us because we were like-minded in the gospel in a variety of different ways, and we just began to query them if it was okay if we could possibly use some of their space on Sundays in which to worship. And every church kind of had their own way of vetting us as a potential partner, you know, our orthodoxy, our theology, our philosophy of ministry. And one of the churches that seemed to be interested in the partnership had a senior pastor who, who summoned me to his office one day. 
And as we just kind of got to know each other a little bit, it was clear that he wanted to sound out our theology. And so he began to interview me about our doctrinal beliefs. And he said, I only have three questions for you. So if you only had three questions to ask of another person to sound out their doctrinal beliefs, what would be the three questions that you would use? Well, he said, first of all, what do you believe about the Bible? And then he said, secondly, what do you believe about Jesus? He said, thirdly, what do you believe about the millennium? And some of you might have heard of similar stories, perhaps even experienced a conversation like that. We're so quickly attached to the Bible. The Son of God is this mysterious thousand-year period of time tucked away only in the book of Revelation, only in chapter 20 of Revelation. This millennium of Christ's reign along with his saints. Uh, you might know recent American evangelical history well enough to know that much of the last hundred years and this side of the Atlantic has been so preoccupied with the millennium that this has mattered more than Trinitarian theology. It has often mattered more than baptismal theology, even church organization and matters of ecclesiology. And what I don't want you to hear me say tonight as we venture into these six verses is that your belief of the millennium is unimportant. Because that certainly isn't true. But I want you to see along the way this evening why this is certainly no doctrine over which Christians and churches should divide. And it is very much vital to your faith. I've even taught Sunday schools in the past here at Redeemer on these matters of eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. And as we've, we've come to this topic of the millennium, I've taken this old poster of Uncle Sam from years past when you know, the nation would use it. He's got a finger pointing out, you know, Uncle Sam, the U.S. Army wants you. And I wiped away the words and I just simply said, don't be a pan-millennialist. Which simply is, don't be the kind of person that says, I don't care about the millennium, it'll all just pan out in the end. Don't be a pan-millennialist. Because as you're going to see, I trust, even though you may not agree with how I interpret this passage, how you view this text has genuinely profound implications and ramifications for your life here on earth today and tomorrow and this week. So we want to consider these things in the brief time that we have together this evening. We don't have the time, therefore, to deal with all the questions that you might have. We don't have time, therefore, to deal with all the various interpretations that you might know come from these few verses. But we can sketch out the brief survey very quickly. There's a number of Christians around the world today that would say that the millennium is something that follows the second coming of Jesus Christ. That there's this literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and that's going to follow his return. They would be known as premillennialists. Well, then you would have, in some ways, on the opposite side of the spectrum, people that would say Jesus returns after the millennium. And particularly in the last several centuries of church history, that Jesus would return to something of a golden age of gospel growth on the earth. Now, that's a group that tends to be called the postmillennialists. And the only other group that we'll mention tonight is one that's called the amillennial perspective that tends to take the millennium as a, a spiritual way of understanding the entirety of church history from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to his return. 
And if you've been with us through our previous months in Revelation, the way in which we've been studying this book, the way we've been interpreting this book, how we're going to study and interpret this passage tonight ought not to be terribly surprising. So the millennium is our theme. And what I hope struck you as I was reading the passage, aside from the times when that phrase, a thousand years, is mentioned, the overwhelming burden of this text is not the chronology attached to these thousand years, the the length and timing of these thousand years, uh, but more about what's happening, the reality of spiritual life, if you will, in this age mentioned in Revelation 20. And so it's two sections that gives us two points. Number one, the millennium and the devil. Secondly, the millennium and death. So that's what we want to think about together tonight. So look again at verse 1 as we consider the millennium and the devil. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. But you can circle that word at the beginning of verse 1, then. Then. So what preceded verse 1 of chapter 20, if you were with us last week, as Mr. Trigstead was preaching through the end of Revelation 19. It's that stunning scene of this writer, Jesus Christ, symbolized as returning on this white horse. So therefore you can understand why many people would say, well, this thousand year age, the millennium, necessarily must come after the second coming of Jesus Christ because the second coming happened in chapter 19 and this thousand year millennial age seems to begin in chapter 20. But we've been arguing all throughout the book all throughout our studies of Revelation, that this is not a book that's meant to be taken chronologically. It's an apocalypse that's full of these different vantage points we've been saying on the period of time between Christ's coming to heaven in the ascension and Christ's coming from heaven at his return. And what I'm going to want you to see tonight is chapter 20, verse 1, begins yet another vantage point. Cycle on this period of time. And I think I can actually show you that quite quickly in two different ways. First of all, if you flip back to chapter 19, verse 15, what was studied last week. You see, John tells us, as he saw this incredibly stunning scene, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And then if you just glance through the rest of that passage, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it last week, that's exactly what happens by the end of chapter 19. Christ crushes the nations. Well, now glance forward to chapter 20, verse 3. You'll see that we're told the nations could no longer be deceived. Move forward to next week's text, Lord willing, chapter 20, verse 8 and following. You'll see again the nations gathered to wage war, to fight a battle, this climactic collision against Christ. Again? Because didn't it just say in chapter 19 that the nations were crushed, yet somehow they're going to show back up and have another climactic battle against Jesus Christ in chapter 20. Well, no, it's another scene. It's through this cycle. Well, you can extend it to, again, in this way. If you look at next week's text again, verse 8 of chapter 20, it uses the language of for battle. Gog and Magog, Satan gathers them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. We've already seen, though, however, if you have 
been with us in recent months and can remember back chapter 16, verse 14 of Revelation. Satan gathered the armies of the world for this climactic battle against God and the Lamb. Just glance back to last week's text, chapter 19, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So I would want you to see, and just keeping with the normal way we've been walking through this book, it's just another glance at that climactic, final collision between Christ and the nations of the world. Therefore, it should not be surprising then that I want you to understand these thousand years, this millennium, as speaking about the age between the two comings of Jesus Christ. And John is meant to see something particular about this age. If you glance again, children, at verse 1, what is this divine angel holding in his hands? He's got a key, and he's got a chain. So you, you need to see this angel is functioning here as something like a, a heavenly jailer. He's the warden of God's prison. And who's he getting ready to put in the cell? Well, it's the devil, isn't it? Look at verse 2. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. So you will notice in the course of the next few verses, you get this phrase, a thousand years show up. It's just the way that the Latin would speak of millennium, which is why we speak of the millennium. It's just another way of saying a, a thousand years. And as we've done throughout this book also, we, we want to understand, believe we ought to understand from the apocalyptic genre, these numbers are meant to be taken symbolically. Think of all the numbers that we've seen already to this point in Revelation 20, that we've interpreted as representative symbols of spiritual realities. Oh, you can think of the seven spirits that surround the throne there in heaven. You can think of the ten days of tribulation mentioned to the churches in Asia Minor. You can think of the crown of twelve stars. You can think of the 144,000 dressed in pure white linen, numbers symbolic of a deeper spiritual reality. And that's, I do believe, why we should take these thousand years, not meant to be literal. In the same way when the psalmist speaks of the cattle on a thousand hills belonging to God. It's a way of speaking about this large and long period of time, if not a literal, definite period of time. And the focus, of course, in this first section is on the devil. But what about the devil? He's not removed from the scene, but he is restrained you see the purpose clause at the middle part of verse 3. This divine jailer throws him into the pit, shuts it, seals it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So no longer does Satan in this age of the millennium, in this gospel advancing age, have the power to orchestrate the world and its governments in such a way to, to rise up and come against the church and, and crush the church. That's why from that tiny little place there in the Roman Empire in the first century, the gospel goes forth. And what do you know? After years and years, centuries and centuries, being seemingly only isolated to the nation of Israel, it goes forth quickly, freely, fully to the ends of the earth. Why? Because Satan can no longer deceive the nations. The text isn't telling us that Satan is no longer operating, that Satan is no longer powerful, that Satan no longer wants to destroy the church, but it's saying in a very particular way, 
Satan doesn't get to blind nations anymore. This is the age of the gospel advancing to all peoples. But there is a time coming, you see at the end of verse 3, when Satan is going to rise in power. After that, he must be released for a little while. And you'll have to return next week to see what that little while looks like. Because that's the next section in Revelation 20. So this is the millennium and the devil. What about the millennium and death? In verses 4 through 6. I wonder if some of you can think back to February of 2015. When many news outlets throughout the world uh, put up a picture of 20 Christians uh, dressed in orange jumpsuits on a beach in Libya. And their persecutors were there calling them to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. And they, of course, refused to renounce their faith in the Lord. And so they were made to kneel down there on the sand. And then if you know what happened, one by one, they lost their heads because of their love and devotion to Jesus Christ. And it was only three years later, or it was actually as long as three years later, that their bodies were finally able to be recovered and returned to Egypt and buried in a properly Christian way. And I tell you that because what the text goes on to say is what happens to such martyrs, what belongs to the bodies of those who have been beheaded for their faith in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 4. John says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I want you to see, first of all, that beginning of verse 4 speaks about these thrones. Perhaps you've grown up in a tradition that's understood these thrones to be earthly thrones. What you need to know is these thrones have shown up already a number of times in Revelation. They're always thrones in heaven. It's as though what John is doing in this very moment, in God's kindness, God is helping him by his spirit to see two realities, one below and one above. It's as though in the first section he's looking down with one eye, at the story of the church militant on earth, where Satan is bound and the gospel is advancing. But then with the other eye, he's looking up. At the same time, John has seen not just the church militant down here, but the church triumphant up there, reigning with Christ. Because what it's talking about, of course, clearly here, is the souls of those who have been martyred for their faith. It's a striking thing to wonder even how John can speak about, I saw souls of those who had been beheaded. And it's possible that you can take the middle part of verse 4 as referring to only the martyrs. That I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, those who did not worship the beast or receive its image. Uh, I do think it's actually better to think of it as two distinct groups, which kind of encompasses the entire church, not just those who died for Christ, but also those who died in their devotion to Christ. Speaking about what students we have historically called in theology the intermediate state. What happens to the soul when the body is laid into the ground? As in this text telling us what even our church's catechism teaches, that the body is laid into the ground. We recited this, didn't we, just several weeks ago. Body is laid into the ground and the soul is made perfect in holiness and the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. It's what the text says is the first resurrection. Look at verse 5. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So therefore, I think it's right for us to understand then that those who die in the Lord, their bodies go into the grave, but their souls are resurrected. They're united still to Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning with Him in glory. Perhaps more complexity comes in verse 6 in the middle. We're speaking about those who have been partakers of this first resurrection. It says, over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years, for a millennium. Even someone asked me recently, what's the second death? The best way, I think, to take this, and the right way, I think, to take this, is to understand that the first death is that of the separation of the soul from the body. The second death is that of the separation of the soul from God, because the text is telling us those that enjoy the first resurrection, if that's rightly understood to be the souls of those who have been united to Jesus Christ, well, they won't see what? They won't taste what? This second death which is the eternal judgment, which is the final judgment, which is the eternal death that belongs to those who are apart from Jesus Christ. And said in that age of which we're waiting for Jesus to return, this millennial age that's right now, I would want you to see that those who die in Jesus Christ rule and reign as their souls are united to him in heaven. This is the millennium and the devil. And this is the millennium and death. A pastor, a friend of mine, was, was saying recently how during his teenage years he was a lover of poetry. And he took an English literature class with a teacher that nearly killed his love for poetry. Such was his detailed analysis of all of the phrases and the meters and the prose. And evidently this uh, pastor friend leaned into his other friend that was seated with him in the class during a lecture one day and said, Mark my words. If this man treats his wife like he treats his poems, he's going to be divorced very soon. Well, fast forward the story a number of years. The student-turned-pastor picks up the newspaper, turns to page three of the daily, and sure enough, the wife had divorced this professor because evidently his personality of overanalyzing, excruciatingly overanalyzing the poetry to basically eviscerate it of all its emotion and remove all of its beauty had carried over into a number of other parts of his life where he was doing the exact same thing and he was entirely incapable of being lived with. Now, I tell you that because I tend to think, perhaps it's only my experience, but I do think in this kind of context of North Texas, it will be a number of years as well, we can tend to do that with Revelation chapter 20. We can so dissect it in its details that we miss the chance for devotion to Jesus Christ that's so clearly presented in what it tells us about the devil and what it tells us about death. Because for some people, this is the chapter that is the most confusing and this most confusing of books. Maybe you know for others how it is really the most controversial chapter even in denominational experience. Uh, But this chapter is actually uh, meant to tell you nothing that's terribly debated, terribly controversial. And I trust if you glance at it with the right interpretive lenses, not so confusing either. And to help you do that, I I want to show you three final things by way of application as we begin to close this evening. I want you to see, number one, how God's truth about the millennium brings courage. God's truth about the millennium brings courage. Satan is bound. He no longer can deceive the nations. It's why, 
from that tiny place way across the ocean. So many centuries ago, the gospel begins to go forth that now in 2021, people in McKinney, Texas, which was alike to a galaxy far, far away from the Roman Empire, now rejoices in the same good news. Shouldn't it give you courage to know Satan no longer can deceive the nations and your evangelism and church planting It's even why as a church we should be excited, always growing in our desire to reach the unreached people groups of the world. Why? Satan can't blind them anymore to the truth of the gospel. Sure, he's working in various ways. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us, blinding the minds of unbelievers. But no longer can he keep an entire people group in the dark, in perpetuity. The gospel that's found here in the millennium brings you courage. Number two, God's truth about the millennium brings you comfort. Look at the beginning of verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Said a little bit differently with some words of commentary. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in his or her soul being united to Jesus Christ. Some of you, I know, in this room have lost loved ones recently. Perhaps it's been a family member. Perhaps even you have a friend or neighbor who's lost a loved one. And do you see the comfort that belongs to dying in the Lord? Even those of you who are perhaps facing down death sooner than others in the room, do you see the comfort you can leave behind to your loved ones dying well in the Lord? Blessed and holy is the one who enjoys the first resurrection. It brings courage, it brings comfort, and of course, thirdly and finally, God's truth about the millennium brings us to Christ. For he is the strong man that has put binds and shackles around Satan. He, of course, is the Savior who has defeated death, removing all of its sting, emptying it of its victory. Therefore, he can say, can't he, before he ascends into heaven, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So however long it takes, if this interpretation is correct, for this thousand-year period, the symbolic millennium, this redemptive historical moment between the two comings of Jesus Christ, however long it takes for Christ to return, we all know, don't we, that if he tarries another hundred years in this thousand-year reign of Revelation 20, surely, all of us in the room today will find our bodies lying in the grave. And the question for you this evening is what will happen to your soul? Will your body lie in the grave along with your soul because you've rejected Jesus Christ and continued unbelief and unrepentance and therefore what you are actually waiting for is the second death. A death that we'll see next week by the end of this chapter is best summarized as being thrown into a lake of fire. Or will your body lie in the grave and your soul rise to where Christ is seated? Because, of course, the guarantee of our resurrection is the good news that we praise a king and a savior who has been raised, the firstfruits of all resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask 
that you would bring us by your spirit, the courage found from Christ's victory, that comfort and the sweet promise of life after death, the full enjoying of his blessedness to all eternity, that we might live as your people with perseverance and patience, with holiness and happiness, as we yearn always and we even pray you would increase our longing for the Savior's return. And we pray all of these things in his glorious name. Amen. Well, it's-